Welcome to the NIHR Dementia Researcher podcast, brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk, in association with Alzheimer's Research UK and Alzheimer's Society, supporting early career dementia researchers across the world. Hi, everyone. Welcome to a special iStart Research Perspective show, recorded for Dementia Researcher podcast. In this program, we'll be exploring different perspectives on a particular research topic, including the words of someone living with dementia to highlight the lived experience and the words of a researcher to summarize the latest advances. My name is Fernando Guzzoli, and as you can tell by my accent, I am Brazilian. I am a journalist, but more importantly, a devoted grandson. My personal interest in dementia began when my grandmother and also my best friend was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, an event that completely transformed our lives and pushed me to see the world in a way I have never ever considered before. Aware of the impact that the disease will bring to our lives, I decided to drop out of college and quit my job to dedicate myself to the person who needed me the most. And for six long and incredible years, we lived an adventure where I was able to safeguard her dignity until the very last moment. Today, I dedicate my time to find ways to combine storytelling and science, aiming to raise empathy and connect everyone involved in this ecosystem of caring for someone with dementia. Today, we focus on social isolation, a major public health concern that affects between 5 to 25% of adults aged 65 and over. Social isolation can give rise to a sense of loneliness, and affect both our physical and mental health. It is a known risk factor for dementia and can also negatively impact the quality of life for everyone, people living with dementia and their family members. Such consequences may not be surprising. Humans are inherently social beings. Visiting friends, joining clubs and bonding with family are everyday activities. Research has shown that such activities have a positive impact on our health, can reduce the chance of becoming depressed, and may also protect against cognitive decline later in life. During the COVID-19 pandemic, many of us have experienced social isolation and witnessed family and friends struggling with the lack of social contact. This experience has often been compounded for people living with dementia and their families, But fortunately, many have successfully developed strategies to avoid the isolation and remain engaged in their communities, showing an inspiring and a resilient example to all of us. Today, we will be exploring the impact of social isolation and dementia from two different angles, thus diversifying the emotional and the scientific perspectives on the topic. First, we will hear from Lori, who has been living with Alzheimer's. And then we will discuss the latest findings on the subject with Professor Brian Lawler, a geriatrician and director of the Global Brain Health Institute in Dublin, Ireland. So, hello, my name's Laurie Waters. I live in Clover, South Carolina, USA. I'm on the National Early Stage Advisory Board for the Alzheimer's Association. I've been happily married for 17 years. I have two daughters and a stepson, five grandchildren. I previously owned two businesses for many years. And prior to diagnosis, I worked as a senior reimbursement counselor 
for a major pharmaceutical company for 10 years. And now since diagnosis, I am retired and basically um, being an outspoken person for early onset Alzheimer's. Thank you, Lori. So can you guide us through the moment when you found out about your diagnosis? So the moment I found out about my diagnosis, I was devastated. I had to do a lot of research at first. I thought there was no way this could be real. This was an old person's disease. I had contemplated suicide. I was not going to have my family or husband have to deal with this. I'm too proud of a person to have someone take care of me. And when I sat down and finally realized that, wow, this is real, I had to stop working, had to change everything that I do, and had to explain it to my family. Before my diagnosis, I was very active. One of my businesses I owned for 14 years was a bar and a club. So I was that social butterfly that had friends all over the place. Everybody always wanted to, you know, be around us. Um, everybody always comes to me with their issues and their problems. I'm a major football fanatic. I even, when we moved south after I closed my bar up north, I built the bar here in my house also and have all the football paraphernalia here also. So we have uh, big football parties here, big parties, and <laughs> just enjoy life. How has Alzheimer's impacted your social life? So Alzheimer's has impacted my social life by people don't seem to know how to handle my diagnosis or being near me and around me. They don't know if I'm contagious. They don't know how to talk to me. They're afraid of me. They don't know if something is going to happen. I think they're afraid of being close to me. They feel that somebody with Alzheimer's is that person that's going to die in less than a year. They don't realize that even though it's uh, the diagnosis of Alzheimer's, I'm still here. You can still talk to me. You can still come to me. I'm still going to be there for you. I'm not that far gone. I'm not that far progressed in the disease. So the friendships and the party, like if I have a drink, they're like, oh my goodness, she's, have, she's got a drink in her hand. Well, yeah, I still can have a drink. I'm still going to have my margarita when I want it. I'm still have a shot of tequila here and there. We still can enjoy ourselves. I'm not going to stop just because I have a diagnosis. Why do you feel some people do not understand your new reality? Um, well, good, good view is like one of my sisters. I come from a very large family. A lot of people still have that old perspective where the only way you can be diagnosed with Alzheimer's on the autopsy table. 
when we told her, she sat there and said, oh, you can't have Alzheimer's. The only way they can diagnose you with Alzheimer's is when you're on the autopsy table. Well, no, I had every single test in the entire world. I had the neuropsychology testing. I had the MRI. I had the CAT scan. I had everything you can think of. And I had the best doctors test me. They feel, people feel that if you have Alzheimer's, you can't do anything. You shouldn't be driving a vehicle. You shouldn't be talking. You shouldn't be able to give advice. You shouldn't be able to do anything. You should be sitting in that corner, drooling on yourself, being fed, being changed, having your diaper changed that you're going to basically shit yourself. That's not going to, excuse my French, but that's not going to happen. I mean, one day, yes, this may happen to me. Hopefully I will pass away before this happens. So I'm not a burden to the family. But people don't understand. They don't do their due diligence and learn. Yeah, I had the same struggle with my grandma and some family members, a lot of friends as well. And it's amazing to be the opportunity of being here, hearing from you, your perspective, someone that lived this reality. Do you feel that it is possible in some way to train or prepare your family and your friends to deal with all these changes? And without leaving aside this, the life and the social contact that you had before? I try. We try. My husband and I both try. I try to talk to them and I try to explain to them what is to come. They don't want to hear it. What they see right now is, well, you're still here. You're, you're fine. Don't talk about what's coming. That's not going to happen. You know, uh, you're thinking negative. Stop thinking negative. Well, I'm not thinking negative. I'm just trying to prepare you. When they hear that I have a DNR, why would you do that? You don't need a DNR. Well, no, that's just, I mean, that's just in preparation. If, if God willing, I have a heart attack, oh, thank goodness. I don't want to be kept alive. He'll take me early. I'll be happy as a clam. I know what is going to come. Nobody else wants to know that. They think you're still here. Everybody forgets. That's the famous saying. Well, everybody forgets. We all do that. Reality is, when the time comes and I forget, it's not going to come back. People don't want to face that. People don't want to see what's going to happen. Everybody wants to live in a glass house where everything is perfect and roses are coming up and life is gentle and kind. Well, life really isn't. Reality is this terrible, horrible disease is going to cripple me. It's going to make my life a living hell. And when I try to explain this to people, they can't handle it. So I've come to the understanding, okay, they can't handle it and they never will. Did you find any social group after your diagnosis where you could be part of where you felt comfortable with and how did it make a difference in your life today one of the best things that have happened to me since diagnosis was two years after diagnosis after trying to find help i found a group in greenville south carolina which is about an hour and a half from where i live 
It's actually other people living with early onset dementia and Alzheimer's. There's about six of them. I walked into a coffee shop and I actually, and I'm not a crier. I burst into tears because they are exactly like me and they are living their life to the fullest. And we have a connection that nobody can understand when you meet people that are the same as you, that are going through the same thing. We support each other. We care for each other. And through them, I met people across the country. We have, I have DAI, DAA, everything. I mean, in Europe and <laughs> everywhere and across the United States. It's just absolutely amazing the connections that you have when you have other people that are living every single day just like me. And we're not sitting down and we're doing everything we can to get through. There are writers out there that are amazing artists, uh, singing, storytellers, you name it. It's, it's just amazing. Feeling that you're not alone is something priceless. And how do you think it's possible to maintain the social life of caregivers and family members after the diagnosis? Getting involved. Just if you... You need to do your research. You need to do your homework. And if everybody just learns to accept it and just, okay, let's, let's, let's go on. Let's, let's do this. We can do this. But keeping active, if you keep active, I do believe because of staying active, that's the only reason why I'm here. And I'm going to be here for a long time because I'm active. And I, I stay active with all my friends. It's not a secret we are living a pandemic and that's that's horrible for all of us. But how are you facing the isolation brought by or maybe intensified by the pandemic? So with the pandemic, it's actually been a benefit for me because of COVID, we have Zoom. And with Zoom, I have been able to do these meetings across the pond, across the world, and everywhere, I have friends now that have come into my home, have embraced me. I get to talk with people everywhere that are living every single day. And it's just, it has kept me alive. And my husband has said, it, it, the difference in me is 150%. And I do believe that if it was not for COVID and Zoom, <laughs> I probably would have committed suicide a year and a half ago. And that's a horrible thing to say, but it's true because I did not know anybody else had this. All I could think of was that old person sitting in a memory care facility alone. And now I have people everywhere that are still here. And so this is very impactful for me. But even with the challenges you told me right now, in our first conversation, you said something that I, I didn't forget. I am living a beautiful life. Something that I hope my grandma also considered many years ago. And what could you say to other people who are discovering Alzheimer's today? Get out there and live. Do everything and anything. Like I told you before, I go ziplining. I go full wheeling. I do everything. There are parents, there are um, young people that are standing on the ground while I'm on top of a zipline. 
with my grandson and walking across, you know, the, the ropes a mile up in the air. It doesn't phase me. Nothing phased me. I am not afraid of anything. I am not afraid of heights. I am not afraid of doing anything. If somebody asks me if you want to go jump out of the plane today, let's go. If you want to go, you know, um, horseback, my, I love horseback riding. I love going to the waterfalls. I love any water. I want to see every waterfall in the world. If I could see it today, I would. I went and I found my sister, Cheryl. Everybody talked about her. I did it. I took the DNA last year and I found my sister who is four months older than me. Her and I are going to Alaska in June. We're going to go see the glaciers. We're going to go crabbing. You know, the big Alaskan crabs, they're going to jump in the boat. I'm like, I don't care. I'm doing it. You can do anything you want. We do it. That's wonderful, Laurie. And can you tell me, please, how has been the experience of talking to your family through Zoom and connecting with them during this pandemic? The, the hard part with that is like my grandson's birthday last week. Now, seeing them is great on Zoom. However, my grandson, who's up in New England, he turned six years old last week. I didn't even recognize him. So it's been a year because as we know, COVID was last March, but we were supposed to be up there in April. COVID hit, we didn't get to go. We normally are up there three, four, four times a year and they come down here also. I haven't seen them. I am so terrified with this damn diagnosis that I'm not gonna remember my baby boy. He was on the couch sitting next to his dad, his dad's in his uniform. I know it's him. I didn't recognize him. I had no idea it was him. Dad's saying, I thought it was one of his friends. When we finally do get together, am I going to know my grandson, the youngest one, the oldest ones, twins, thank goodness they just moved here. So I'll see them all the time. I don't remember coworkers when I would go into the office. How am I going to remember my own flesh and blood that I don't get to see all the time because of COVID? It's a scary, scary thing when you're not there with them. Well, I can tell you as a grandson who lived an amazing journey with my grandma, with a wonderful grandma, that even if or when you don't remember your baby boy, he will never forget. I can assure you that. And just to end our wonderful conversation, I, I have to ask you, our audience, they are all early career researchers. Do you have any message for them? So as of today, there's no cure for Alzheimer's. Thankfully, many researchers are working diligently to find a cure. I personally know we can retrain our minds, keeping them active as much as possible. And also with repetitive activity. I may not be alive for a cure, but I do believe the more research into early onset and listening to and speaking with as many younger diagnosed individuals like myself, we will bring a cure one day. Thank you for all you do and continue to do. 
Thank you so much for this moment, Lori. Thanks for sharing with all of us the adventure that you're living right now, actually. That's the word. And I hope really soon we will cross our paths and maybe, who knows, drink that margarita that you promised me. Thank you so much, Lori. That sounds like a plan. We are now joined by Professor Lawler, who is a directing member of the Global Brain Health Institute at Trinity College Dublin, a consultant psychiatrist at St. James Hospital, also in Ireland, and a researcher with great expertise in the subject chosen for this episode. Brian, first of all, I want to thank you for participating with us. We just heard from Laurie, a devoted mother, wife, and grandmother, about the impact of social isolation changing her life after Alzheimer's diagnosis. I imagine that, and I'm just wondering here, but you didn't just wake up one day and decided to study social isolation. So I wanted to start asking you, what drew you to study social isolation after all? Well, let me tell you a little bit about my journey into loneliness and isolation. I learned very little about social isolation and loneliness in medical school, or indeed in my psychiatry training. And it was only through research and clinical practice that I first began to appreciate the importance of understanding social connection and asking the right questions. And let me tell you a little story. When I returned to Ireland in the early 1990s, I got involved in a study called EuroDEP. It was coordinated by Professor John Copeland out of the University of Liverpool. And we were looking at depression in the community dwelling elderly across various European countries, including Ireland. And we were using an instrument called the GMSHCAP. And it had a series of questions about loneliness, which I really hadn't thought much about before this. And it was, became clear to me that loneliness was somehow wrapped up in depression, but it seemed different to depression. Now, I was aware that psychoanalysts like Frieda Fromm Reichman had written about loneliness in the 1950s, but it really hadn't made it into the mainstream psychiatry. And it was really an area of study primarily by social scientists at the time. And this was my first introduction to social networks and isolation. And there was also a social network scale there in the instrument called the uh, Social Network Typology by Claire Wenger uh, out of Bangor in Wales. And, and this scale asked questions about frequency and types of contact. You know, how many people did you meet a week, family, friends? And there was one particular question that stood out for me which was, who is the most important person in your network? So I started to be, ask my patients in the clinic questions around their social network and loneliness. And it really opened up a vista for me and for my patients in terms of understanding loss and loneliness, but also provided a pathway to how isolation and loneliness could be tackled. And I firmly believe that questions about connection are as important as understanding other risk issues for older people. And it also provides us with keys to unlock solutions for their care and what we need to teach healthcare professionals in training about the importance of asking these questions. So for me, social connection, that's understanding isolation alone, is really key to understanding life and well-being and people's health. You used also the term loneliness. Uh, and a lot of people actually use this word to describe social isolation. But are these terms interchangeable? They're not really interchangeable. I mean, isolation and loneliness can go together, but you can be isolated and lonely, but you can be isolated and not lonely. 
So loneliness is essentially a subjective, painful, unpleasant experience, and it's a dissatisfaction with the quality of your social relationships. Isolation is more objectively measured. It's more about the number and the quantity of your context, the frequency of the context that you have. So they can co-occur. So people who are lonely can often be isolated and becoming isolated uh, can increase your loneliness. But as I said already, you can be lonely and not isolated at all. And you can be isolated and not feel lonely. And from the perspective of someone who has cared for a loved one with Alzheimer's, reducing the risks for dementia seems like a pretty good deal to me, Brian. Does social contact help to improve our aging process and protect our brain from decline? Well, we know from observational studies that people that are, who are isolated and lonely are more likely to develop Alzheimer's disease. But this is an observed association. What we don't know is if this association is causal and if so, what's causing what? So for example, the brain changes that occur with Alzheimer's disease may cause you to withdraw and become more isolated and give rise to feelings of loneliness. However, being isolated on an ongoing basis and feeling lonely over time could contribute to cognitive decline, possibly through lack of stimulation or through other mechanisms. For example, people who are lonely and isolated, they may smoke more, they may drink more, they may not pay attention to medical risk factors like high blood pressure and diabetes, they may not see the doctor as often as they should. So I think that the evidence we have suggests that both aspects are at play. Isolation and loneliness can reflect the brain changes of dementia, but it can also increase the risk of developing dementia. But one way or the other, I think it's important that we support and promote social connection to decrease loneliness and isolation because it's good for your brain health and it's very good for your sense of well-being. We discussed the effect of social activities as straightening our brain's resistance and resilience to the disease, which is something we can do to improve our aging process. But we are talking about risk reduction, yet we still cannot predict what will actually prevent the onset of Alzheimer's. In this context, how and why Alzheimer's might affect people's social life after diagnosis? Well, I think there are probably two parts in terms of my answer here. Firstly, if you take the diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease or dementia, this can have a significant impact on a, on a person's sense of confidence, and it can result in them feeling like withdrawing from life. There can also be a sense of embarrassment. Sometimes they can feel um, embarrassed about making mistakes, so they might avoid social contact because they might be afraid they could, could forget somebody's name. Um, they may be embarrassed or feel embarrassed about being able to express themselves properly. In these circumstances, I think it's really important to encourage people to remain as connected as, as possible with family and friends because this social connection and social stimulation will support and promote their brain health, even you know, in the context of them having uh, dementia. But now to the second part of, my, of the answer, I, I, I was struck by Laurie when she spoke about her experience of receiving the diagnosis of early onset Alzheimer's disease. What I remember her saying was she said that people didn't know how to talk to her and they were afraid of getting close to her. And part of this was because of the fear and lack of understanding that 
many people have about dementia. So what can happen around the time of a diagnosis of dementia, and I think this would have occurred in Laurie's case, was that friends may pull away and um, the person with dementia can feel disconnected from their social network. And of course, this is just when they need that network most. So for Laurie, my reading of it was, it was almost as if she, she didn't feel she belonged anymore to her, to the group of friends that she had. In effect, it was as if she had lost that social network. And I would imagine it must have felt very lonely for her. In contrast, when she met the support group with other people who had early onset Alzheimer's disease, they seemed to welcome her in. She felt immediately connected to them and she could identify and see herself in them. So listening to her story, my sense is, is that she really felt she belonged to this group. And this social connection was a really vital part of her recovery, her adaptation, and in increasing her sense of well-being and improving her quality of life. So that's why I think it's so important that we make sure that the people with dementia and their caregivers don't feel isolated or lonely, as this can have a very negative effect on the well-being and mental health. So we need to raise awareness about what dementia is and of the importance of including people with dementia in our communities. Wonderful that you brought back Laurie's experience to our conversation. And do you see many families struggling with the lack of understanding and withdrawing from social interactions, Brian? Yes, I mean, uh, over the last 30 years, I would have a lot of experience uh, with people with dementia and, and, and family members. And sometimes family members, particularly outside the immediate uh, um, family uh, group, they, 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 they feel awkward, they don't really understand what's going on, they don't know what to do, um, and they can withdraw. Um, they don't have, they find it difficult to, to, I suppose, talk to the person with dementia, and uh, they're upset themselves, but they're also sometimes afraid that they might upset the person. And uh, so, on the one hand, the person with dementia may feel like withdrawing because of the sense of embarrassment, or, but sometimes family members or friends tend to withdraw. So it's a, a double whammy, really. And really what we have to do at this stage is really try to encourage people to connect as much as possible, um, to think about the person, not about the illness, not about the disease. And um, I think it's very, very important that people remain socially connected and, and, and feel included, particularly around the time of the diagnosis, um, because that's really when they can uh, build their confidence and develop pathways in terms of promoting and maintaining their brain health. And now going back to your research background, it's impossible for us to address this topic in a pandemic year without discussing the effect of COVID on this population. The pandemic brought both on individuals living with dementia and also their families, a huge additional challenge. We know about the CLIC study that you are involved in, a large survey with more than 5,000 caregivers in 28 countries. Do you have anything to share regarding this amazing initiative? Unfortunately, at this point, I really don't have anything I can share because we're really just analyzing the data. Uh, but you're quite right, it is a remarkable data set. And I think it will really help us understand the impact of COVID and loneliness and isolation in over 20,000 people all over the world, but particularly in 
5,000 caregivers around the world. And I'd just like to say the support of the Alzheimer's Association in recruiting huge numbers of people, I think almost 8,000 people in the USA was crucial to the success of this study. So I think we just have to say, Fernando, just we have to watch this space because I don't have anything I can tell you right now. However, I mean, I would like to comment in more general terms about the impact of COVID-19 on people with dementia and how it has resulted in greater isolation and loneliness for people with dementia and, and in particular for their caregivers as well. So, so during COVID-19, older people and those with dementia have been particularly affected because of the restrictions to visitation, particularly in nursing homes. And there's also been a shutdown in support services and that's hit people with dementia and their caregivers very, very badly. So we've seen an increase in the levels of loneliness and depression experienced by people with dementia in nursing home settings and in those living at home on their own. And this has resulted in the development of more behavioral and psychological symptoms and a decline in cognition, physical health, and well-being for people with dementia. I'd also like to say something about the caregivers and, and, and their loneliness and isolation. And we know that caregivers frequently experience loneliness and isolation as part of the caregiving process. And COVID-19 really has exacerbated all of this. Research that we've done has shown that the level of loneliness and isolation experienced by the caregiver can, is, is associated with the, the sense of burden that they experience. So the greater their sense of loneliness and isolation they feel as a caregiver, the more burden that they experience. So I think it's very important that we inquire about loneliness and isolation in caregivers. And we have to look at interventions that address loneliness and isolation, particularly the emotional loneliness uh, for caregivers. And this emotional loneliness that caregivers can experience when they're caring for somebody with dementia, um, that doesn't necessarily get uh, improved by more frequent contacts uh, because the emotional loneliness needs the sort of more deeper conversation and connection uh, with somebody that they can trust, somebody that they can turn to. As a family member, I, I am pretty sure of all the emotions and the struggle I experienced while caring for my grandma. But I have actually a hard time trying to understand in this academic perspective how it's possible to measure social isolation. Can you share a little bit of that with us? So again, we, we talked earlier about there's a difference between loneliness and social isolation. I mean, loneliness is subjectively experienced. Uh, social isolation is more objectively measured in terms of looking at the, the frequency uh, of contacts, you know, whether people are living alone, living with other people. So there are different scales that can be used to measure loneliness. For example, you can ask a person, do you feel lonely? Yes or no. That's one way of, uh, of, 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 uh, of determining whether somebody is lonely or not. But there are other standard scales to measure loneliness. The two most commonly used scales that would be used in research studies, and studies with, uh, in people living in the community, would be UCLA Loneliness Scale and the Dion Gervais Loneliness Scale. To measure social isolation, this is where you're looking at frequency and type of contacts that people have. Um, the two most widely used scales are the Lubin Social Network Scale and the Birkenstein Social Network Index. So these scales are not perfect, but they give you a handle on whether um, somebody is lonely or somebody is socially isolated or not, and they give you a sense of the degree of loneliness or the degree of social isolation. Laurie addressed a particular 
particularly compelling question to me. And this might be a tricky one, Brian. In our first conversation, she said, after the pandemic, will I be here long enough to remember and impact my grandchildren? And I know, Brian, that's not possible to answer, but I will try to rephrase for a more personal question. How do you see the possibility of readapting ourselves during this challenging period to still impact positively those we love? So I think COVID-19 has had many negative effects on, on, on our health and well-being right across the board, people of all age groups, um, and in particular, people with dementia and their caregivers. I think there still are a number of positives, and, and Laurie you know, did allude to this. First of all, and foremost, I think there's an increased awareness of the importance of social connection to everybody's health. I think people of all ages now have a greater understanding and a sense of empathy for what it is like to feel lonely, to be alone and not connected to friends, because it really has happened to everyone. I think people are more aware of the emotional and physical impact that restrictions have had on people with dementia. And I think for this reason, there may be a greater impetus and a sense of urgency in our society to create supports for people with dementia and their families. And this could be a lasting and a positive legacy of COVID-19, moving us towards fairer and healthier and more inclusive societies, particularly for people with dementia who have been disproportionately affected. I think a second positive for many people with dementia and their caregivers has been the increased use and adaptations around technology to support connection and care. And I was struck by Laurie highlighting this and she, and she got very excited and talked about her, her use of Zoom and how powerful and effective it has been during the lockdown. I believe when it comes to people and particularly people with dementia, we can use technology to support and connect but obviously not to replace human contact. I think there's a lot more that we can do in the, in the digital technology space to connect and support people with dementia and their caregivers. And again, another positive is that COVID-19 has really propelled us in this direction. That's amazing, Brian, completely agree. Uh, unfortunately, we have to wrap up this fantastic social interaction, Brian, but first, do you have any advice for early career researchers in this field? Well. I'm always reluctant to pass on advice, you know, but um, I'll try and give you some advice. Um, I think social connection is really vital for our well-being, our health, and our survival as a, as a human race. It's a key component to our brain health. And even if you have dementia, and I think Laurie has really aptly illustrated this, how important connection and belonging was for her, vital for her adaptation and recovery. I think there's much work to be done. This is, where, this is where we need early career researchers. There are so many unanswered questions regarding loneliness and isolation across the life course. When does loneliness begin, for example? How persistent is it? Understanding more about different dimensions. You know, I talked a little bit about social and emotional loneliness. Also, regarding loneliness and isolation, like which is worse for your health? How do loneliness and isolation impact on dementia risk. We know that they're associated with increased dementia risk, but how exactly do they impact on it? What's the mechanism? And how can we address this association, this risk through effective interventions? A better understanding of loneliness and isolation offers great opportunities to improve the health 
of the people we care for and care about. So very much feel that we need many more early career research researchers in this space. Well, for the sake of our social health and for the benefit of our brains, hope to see you and Laurie very soon in an Irish pub, Brian. Thank you so much for your time. Well, that was an amazing conversation. I am pretty sure we all have been experiencing a hard time during this pandemic, challenging all our ability to socially connect with others. But even in difficult times, examples like Loris, who has been able to rediscover social life during the pandemic, can help inspire us personally, but also professionally. Laurie highlighted how important it is to have a sense of belonging in sustaining good social interactions. And Professor Brian Lawler pointed out the benefits that these interactions can bring to our aging process by protecting our brain health. Many questions on the subject still deserve new answers and approaches. And I hope that Laurie and Professor Lawler have highlighted why these are such urgent and relevant issues. We will keep an eye on the click study to bring you the outcomes as soon as they are presented by the researchers. And I hope you all like it. I truly look forward to joining you again for the iStart and Dementia Researcher collaboration. We will be back soon with other topics, but for now, you can visit dementiaresearcher.nihr.ac.uk for more content. So stay safe, you all. See you soon. Brought to you by dementiaresearcher.nihr.ac.uk in association with Alzheimer's Research UK and Alzheimer's Society, supporting early career dementia researchers across the world.